So we are now in our final week of the book of Daniel, and we're going to try to do a 30,000-foot overview of the book. I try to pull together all of the different pieces that we've brought up and ask the question, how does, how does the whole book fit together as one narrative, trying to get our arms around all of what is put forward in the text? And to do that, I think it's appropriate that we start this final week in Daniel off where we started our teachings in Daniel off by looking at the introduction that Daniel gives to us in chapter 1 and verse 1. So in chapter 1, verse 1, the book of Daniel, we read these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then notice what happens in verse 2 here. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Daniel uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, give us uh, two different accounts, uh, but two complementary accounts of the events of history as they happen to the Jewish people. In verse 1, we see history from a human lens. And in verse 2, we see history from, from the divine lens, right? Verse 1, uh, you see it looks as though Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, simply beat Jerusalem in a military conquest, that he besieged it. And in verse 2, you see that the Lord is the one who actually gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So if you're a Jewish person, the first thing the book of Daniel sets out for you is that the problem in the book of Daniel is not a problem of military power. It is not as though the Israelite people uh, simply lost a military conquest. Uh, but it is that the Israelite people have violated their covenant with God. And so God has rightly given them over to Nebuchadnezzar for destruction. So the book of Daniel opens with this frame. And then the first of the six chapters, all, all, the, all of the first six chapters, uh, give us uh, varying narratives that illustrate the need for faithfulness towards God as opposed to uh, trying to find some other way to gain respect within the context of the Babylonian Empire. So what are you to do as an exile when you have been cast out by God for breaking the covenant? What happens? So then we, we meet these four main characters in verse 7 of chapter 1. Uh, you meet Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And obviously the, the last three of them uh, are more famously known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So you, you meet these characters, and then uh, the very first story we get is about how they have to resist the desire to conform to the culture that they're in. And you see that all uh, from verse 8 all the way through verse 21. And the conclusion uh, in this section is, is advancing the same narrative that we saw in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 which is that from a human lens, things are happening, but there's also a very real fact that God is at work in these events. So if you look just, for example, at verse 9 of chapter 1, you'll notice that as Daniel goes to ask the king's 
the king's chief for favor for this exemption that he's he's looking for verse 9 says and god gave daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs so from a human lens we might say well daniel was lucky or daniel was charismatic or charming but from the divine lens it is god who gives daniel favor in the eyes of these men and you see the same thing uh, in chapter 2 where you have these two groups of people. You have the Chaldeans, the, the wise men of Babylon, who are trying to interpret the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the, the wise men of Babylon, uh, they're just doing whatever is in their own best interests, not necessarily uh, desiring favor uh, from, a divine, from a divine land. They're, they're simply going for, for human influence. And you notice this, that actually King Nebuchadnezzar knows this about them. So, so they go and ask the king, if you tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation of your dream in chapter 2. And in verse 7, uh, they, this is when they ask him the second time. They say, let the king tell his servants the dream, and then we will show its interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar rejects this in verse 8, and he says, the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So these wise men of Babylon from a human lens are trying to uh, use the divine or use religion as a means of influencing the king. And in this case, you're seeing the shortcomings of that false kind of religion, right? They're, they don't actually have any special insight that they've been given. But what's interesting is when, when Daniel and, and his, his compatriots, uh, when they're approached uh, essentially to be executed, uh, they ask for time. Then they go seek God for favor through prayer. And Daniel uh, is, is blessed by God. So you see, uh, for example, in uh, Verse 24, Daniel goes to Arioch and he says, uh, he went to him and says, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king its interpretation. So Daniel is given favor by God. He's given special revelation to see the dream, to understand it, which is something that these other wise men don't have access to. And then Daniel interprets the dream in, in the rest of chapter two. And then uh, you see a similar account in chapter three this time. Uh, it's really Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are kind of on their own in Babylon. And the question is, will they do what the other wise men do? And will they do what is what is prudent? What is expedient? Will they bow before the golden image? Or will they resist? Will they firmly resist as, as they do famously in the text? And if so, what is going to happen to them? And you notice that the, the text is clear that everyone else is worshiping this image uh, but these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, say essentially, King Nebuchadnezzar, you can do what you must, but we're not going to bow to the image. And Nebuchadnezzar throws them into a fire, and these three men are vindicated by being preserved from the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. And that leads to Nebuchadnezzar essentially declaring that um, that their God is worthy of worship, and they're off the hook. They don't have to bow down to the image. And... Uh, 
this is uh, an amazing set, set of events because the very next thing to happen is that Nebuchadnezzar uh, has another dream and Daniel interprets this other dream and Nebuchadnezzar essentially doesn't listen to Daniel's interpretation because he believes or he, he perceives that he is actually sovereign despite essentially what Daniel is saying. And so God humbles Nebuchadnezzar and at the end of his humbling, this is in chapter four, uh, what happens is Nebuchadnezzar uh, makes this profound statement about the identity of Daniel's God. And he says, he says, I bless the most high and praised and honors him who lives forever. And this is, uh, be- this is where the, the quote begins. Uh, verse 34 of chapter four, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of his earth. And none can say his hand or say to him, who, what have you done? So no one can go to God and stop him from doing what he wants to do. This is the point that chapter one, verse one and two makes clear. Uh, no one can stop Yahweh from giving Judea over to Nebuchadnezzar. No one can do it. And Nebuchadnezzar here recognizes that all of the empire that he's been given has been given to him by God. And actually, if I if I might reference to Jeremiah uh, 27 uh, briefly, in Jeremiah 27, you have this exact same prophecy from the mouth of Jeremiah where he's told to go to all these kings, to the Edomites, to the Ammonites, to the king of Tyre, to the king of Sidon. Um, and he's supposed to go to them and say uh, in verse 6 of chapter 27, Now I have given all these lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. So the prophecy of Jeremiah makes clear that it is God who has given Nebuchadnezzar all these things. And in Daniel chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar is simply recognizing the reality of God influencing the world. And then uh, in chapter five of Daniel, we uh, once again bump into another narrative section. This time it's not Nebuchadnezzar, but it is Belshazzar. He's feasting and celebrating, making the same mistake that his father did by believing that these conquests and these victories in this empire is his and his alone, and that he can do whatever he wants with it. He feels safe and secure. And Daniel comes to him during the party and essentially prophesies his destruction, right? The handwriting on the wall uh, means that he's been measured and found wanting, and he will be punished accordingly. And no sooner does Daniel say that than in verse 30 of chapter 5, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So we see that Belshazzar the king is destroyed in his home in, in the very uh, thrust of his mighty empire, and it is because God said he was measured and found wanting, right? You have the human actions that he, he gets killed by the Medo-Persian uh, conquesting empire, but then you have the divine reality that it was because he is judged and found wanting, which is why he's ultimately killed. And this takes us to the last narrative in Daniel. In the narratives, uh, narrative in chapter six, one of the most famous ones is Daniel simply refusing to not pray to God. And much like in chapter three with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel squares off against these other uh, leaders, influencers in the uh, Babylonian empire, Daniel decides he's not going to bow the knee because he believes in God as a reality. And it is because of his prudence 
to, to seek the face of God on a regular basis and his faithfulness in doing that despite opposition that God actually preserves him. And it is in this instance that Nebuchadnezzar makes a second uh, profound statement in at the end of chapter six. This is in verse uh, 27, uh, 26 and 27. He says about the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. It is he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So we know that God through Daniel and through these faithful men is having the impact on the Babylonian empire that is profound, where you have the king of the Babylonian empire giving worship to God as though his kingdom is actually the true everlasting and sovereign kingdom. And that's a profound thing to say. Most notably, it's profound because, well, the Babylonians captured and destroyed the the Judean empire. So why would they worship the Judeans God? Because they would say that their gods are more powerful than Yahweh. But here Yahweh is proving that he can actually assert his own dominance despite his people being in exile, which is a profound thing. So the, the narrative section really lays out for us uh, the events that unfold in the exile and then uh, here and there poking through God's manifest influence and manifest effect in each of these events, that it is better for the exiles to live in light of God uh, and recognize that God has these unfailing purposes that he is working out, uh, than it would be for them to capitulate and do what seems prudent and wise uh, and just become uh, Babylonians and worship other gods. Yahweh is still on the throne. That's the point of the narratives in the first six chapters. And then chapter seven and following, uh, really to the end of Daniel in chapter 12, gives us a series of prophecies. Now, the prophecies aren't new in chapter 7. Actually, we've seen a couple in chapter 2 and chapter 4 through the dreams. But the prophecies in chapter 7 and following um, really highlight and and detail some some events of the previous prophecies and expand them in some ways. But really, they're, they're advancing the same vision of the narratives, which is that God is really the one in control. And from the prophecy's view, they take a step back and look at history over the course of centuries, and they examine how God's influence works in light of these conquesting empires who come against his people and seemingly at random take power and besiege the world. So you have the four beasts in Daniel 7, uh, all of whom are subject to the Son of Man, who is given this everlasting kingdom much like what Nebuchadnezzar has just said in chapter 6 of Daniel's God. And then in chapter 8, you're given the vision of the ram and the goat, who we are told uh, are going to be vicious while they reign on the earth, but ultimately their time is limited and they will have an appointed end. In Daniel chapter 9, we see the beginning of God's providence towards his people uh, and towards the end of chapter 9, specifically after Daniel has sought God's face in prayer time and time again, Uh, we see that God gives this kind of final note uh, that at the end of all this terror to the Jewish people, there will be a a victory and a rescue and one who will come to save them. In Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12, really that's one big vision with chapter 10 just being the introduction. But in, in chapter 10, 11, and 12, you have this final vision, which is really the same as the vision in chapter 7 and chapter 8. 
Um, and this vision just details in much further uh, and more elaborate account all of what will transpire. And with historical precision, it, it prophesies and predicts the future coming of these kings, which will war, which will vie for political power and influence. And at the end of it, uh, you get this kind of note, uh, but at the end of it, uh, it is it is God's people who will be preserved, and it is God who will reign in the end. And, and this is kind of the whole thrust of the book of Daniel, that even though it looks uh, for the exiles that their God has lost the day, that they might as well abandon their religion, that they should just be conformists to the Babylonian society, and that they should really... Uh, they should really question this whole covenant faithfulness thing that has been put forth to them in the law. Uh, what Daniel lays out is a vision for why these things are happening to them. Number one, it's not happening to them because uh, because they are weaker in military power than Babylon. Okay, it's happening to them because God has determined to give His people over because they were disobedient to the covenant. Uh, and when Babylon loses, it's not because well, God's champion Babylon somehow lost the day to Medo-Persian Empire. No, actually, God's punishing the Babylonians for their staunch rebellion to acknowledge him as the one true God. And he's actually giving the empire over to the Medo-Persian Empire. And as, as the rest of the visions and prophecies make clear in Daniel, uh, God is sovereign. God is working out his purposes in history. And the final note at the end of chapter 12 uh, is these words. To Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. But you, Daniel, go to your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So, Daniel, you might have all these questions. You might have so many things that still don't make sense to you. But at the end of the day, here's what you need to know it is in my sovereign control. This is the thrust of the book. So, the purpose of the book of Daniel is to give a vision of reality, really, a, a counter vision from what we can see on a human level. On a human level, all we see uh, is, is things working themselves out uh, here on earth. Uh, but what the book of Daniel does, and, and really Revelation in the New Testament operates in a similar way, is that it gives us a vision from above of the happenings in the world. It gives us a, a real good perspective on why things happen the way they happen, on, on how God is working out his sovereignty in and through evil empires. And for the people in Daniel's day, that could be an immense comfort. But I think most notably for us today, as, as God's people who live uh, in, in a similar kind of situation where we don't have an Israelite theocracy on this world, um, one of the things we have to recognize is that there are still evil emperors. There are still evil kings. There are still wicked governments. And there are still people who will try to expunge the witness of Christians and faithful people uh, all throughout the ages. So in the light of the, those realities, the book of Daniel is very much a, a wake-up call for us. It is very much an encouragement to us. And it gives us a divine perspective that even though it seems as though these wicked kings might have won the day, uh, what the people of God need to know is that God is the one who sits on the throne. It is his kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. And that faithfulness to God is the ultimate prize to be won. Being faithful in your life, uh, sometimes we're called to being faithful unto death, uh, that our witness would be true, that our word would be fixed, uh, and that we would actually be 
aligned with God, even when it looks bad for God's people. And that's, that's kind of the thrust of the book of Daniel. Uh, that's what the narratives give us, right? Individual accounts of how this actually works out on the ground. And then that's what the prophecies gives us uh, by giving us this grandiose picture of how God is sovereign in the events of history, particularly the events in the near future, which Daniel and his people are going to experience, culminating in God's redemption of his people and his putting all these empires under his feet, the feet of uh, his son um, in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we know uh, as Christians uh, that all these things have, have happened, they have been fixed, that God has, has won his victory through Christ on the cross. And we live much like Daniel did in light of those realities. What he hoped for and lived uh, in light of happening in the future, we live uh, in hope uh, of what has happened in the past and we long for that future day when all that has happened in the past for us, uh, in the crucifixion of Jesus, um, will be established in the world. Um, that his kingdom won't merely be a kingdom that is is small and unseen and invisible, but we actually long for the day when his kingdom will be a felt reign upon this earth, right? We pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is what we ask God for on a regular basis so that he might establish all things to the power of his will, that he will put to death the wickedness in the world, um, and that we, his people, will be vindicated and live uh, as, as saints who have been preserved faithfully till the end. And Daniel gives us somewhat of a vision of those realities. So with that, let me just close in a word of prayer, and then we can discuss much of these other details in the book uh, as we move now into some, some questions. So, Lord, we thank you for this book, Thank you for the overall message of your providence, preserving your people in all ages and all times. And Lord, we just ask that you would give us grace as we try to be faithful to the call of this book, uh, to live lives, surrender to you, faithful to you. Uh, we recognize that that is, in our, in our weakness, uh, such a difficult call because we are not by nature uh, God-fearers. Uh, we, we fear man. Uh, we do what we want to. Uh, we don't often do uncomfortable things. Uh, and yet Daniel calls us to a vision of reality that, that, is, that is true. It is, it is real. It is, it is concrete. And we pray that you would give us grace to help us to see that vision, to capture it, and to live in light of it. We ask this in your name. Amen.